Section 49 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 44. Louis Fourteenth, His Wars and His Conquests. Part 6. One man alone, though it were the Prince of Orange, cannot long withstand the wishes of a free people. The Republican Party, for a while cast down by the death of John Van Witt, had taken courage again, and Louis XIV secretly encouraged it. William of Orange had let out his desire of becoming Duke of Gueldre and Count of Zutphen. These foreshadowings of sovereignty had scared the province of Holland, which refused its consent. The influence of the Stadtholder was weakened thereby. The estates pronounced for peace, spite of the entreaties of the Prince of Orange. Quote, I am always ready to obey the orders of the State, said he, but do not require me to give my assent to a peace which appears to me not only ruinous, but shameful as well. Two deputies from the United Provinces set out for Brussels. Quote, it is better to throw oneself out of the window than from the top of the roof, said the Spanish plenipotentiary to the nuncio, when he had cognizance of the French proposals, and he accepted the treaty offered him. Quote, the Duke of Villa Hermosa says that he will accept the conditions, for ourselves we will do the same, said the Prince of Orange bitterly, and so here is peace made, if France continues to desire it on this footing, which I very much doubt. At one moment, in fact, Louis the Fourteenth raised fresh pretensions. He wished to keep the places on the Meuse, until the Swedes, almost invariably unfortunate in their hostilities with Denmark and Brandenburg, should have been enabled to win back what they had lost. This was to postpone peace indefinitely. The English Parliament and Holland were disgusted and concluded a new alliance. The Spaniards were preparing to take up arms again. The king, who had returned to the army, all at once cut the knot. Quote, the day I arrived at the camp, writes Louis the Fourteenth, I received news from London apprising me that the King of England would bind himself to join me in forcing my enemies to make peace, if I consented to add something to the conditions he had already proposed. I had a battle over this proposal, but the public good, joined to the glory of gaining a victory over myself, prevailed over the advantage I might have hoped for from war. I replied to the King of England that I was quite willing to make the treaty he proposed to me, and at the same time I wrote to the States-General a letter, stronger than the first, being convinced that since they were wavering, they ought not to have time given to them to take counsel upon the subject of peace with their allies, who did not want it." Bavernink went to visit the king at Ghent, and he showed so much ability that the special peace concluded by his plans received in Holland the name of Benernink's peace. Quote, I settled more business in an hour with M. de Bavernink than the plenipotentiaries would have been able to conclude in several days, said Louis the Fourteenth. The care I had taken to detach the allies one from another overwhelmed them to such an extent that they were constrained to submit to the conditions of which I had declared myself in favour at the commencement of my negotiations. I had resolved to make peace, but I wished to conclude one that would be glorious for me and advantageous for my kingdom. I wished to recompense myself by means of the places that were essential for the probable conquests I was losing, and to console myself for the conclusion of a war which I was carrying on with pleasure and success. Amidst such turmoil, then, I was quite tranquil, and saw nothing but advantage for myself, whether the war went on or peace were made." All difficulties were smoothed away. Sweden had given up all stipulations for her advantage. The firm will of France had triumphed over the vacillations of Charles II and the Allies. Quote, 
The behavior of the French in all this was admirable, says Sir W. Temple, an experienced diplomatist, long versed in all the affairs of Europe, whilst our own counsels and behavior resembled those floating islands which winds and tide drive from one side to the other. On the 10th of August, in the evening, the special peace between Holland and France was signed after twenty-four hours' conference. The Prince of Orange had concentrated all his forces near Mons, confronting Marshal Luxembourg, who occupied the plateau of Casteau. He had no official news as yet from Nijmegen, and on the 14th he began the engagement outside the Abbey of Saint-Denis. The affair was a very murderous one, and remained indecisive. It did more honour to the military skill of Prince of Orange than to his loyalty. Holland had not lost an inch of her territory during this war, so long, so desperate, and notoriously undertaken in order to destroy her. She had spent much money, she had lost many men, she had shaken the confidence of her allies by treating alone and being the first to treat, but she had furnished a chief to the European coalition, and she had shown an example of indomitable resistance. The States-General and the Prince of Orange alone, besides Louis the Fourteenth, came the greater out of the struggle. The King of England had lost all consideration both at home and abroad, and Spain paid all the expenses of the war. Peace was concluded on the 17th of September, thanks to the energetic intervention of the Hollanders. The King restored Courtrai, Audenarde, Hattes, and Charleroi, which had been given him by the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle, Ghent, Limbourg, and Saint-Ghislain, but he kept by definitive right Saint-Omer, Cassel, Aire, Ypres, Cambrai, Bouchain, Valenciennes, and all Franche-Comté. Henceforth he possessed in the north of France a line of places extending from Dunkirk to the Meuse. The Spanish monarchy was disarmed. It still required a successful campaign under Marshal Crequy to bring the emperor and the German princes over to peace. Exchanges of territory and indemnities re-established the Treaty of Westphalia on all essential points. The Duke of Lorraine refused the conditions on which the king proposed to restore to him his duchy, so Louis the Fourteenth kept Lorraine. The king of France was at the pinnacle of his greatness and power. Quote, Singly against all, as Louvois said, he had maintained the struggle against Europe, and he came out of it victorious. Everywhere, with good reason, was displayed his proud device, nec pluribus impar. Quote, my will alone, says Louis the Fourteenth in his memoir, concluded this peace, so much desired by those on whom it did not depend. For as to my enemies, they feared it as much as the public good made me desire it, and that prevailed on this occasion over the gain and personal glory I was likely to find in the continuation of the war. I was in full enjoyment of my good fortune and the fruits of my good conduct, which had caused me to profit by all the occasions I had met with for extending the borders of my kingdom at the expense of my enemies. End quote. Quote, here is peace made, wrote Madame de Sévigny to the Count of Bussy. The king thought it handsomer to grant it this year to Spain and Holland than to take the rest of Flanders. He is keeping that for another time. The Prince of Orange thought as Madame de Sévigny. He regarded the peace of Nijmegen as a truce, and a truce fraught with danger to Europe. For that reason did he soon seek to form alliances in order to secure the repose of the world against the insatiable ambition of King Louis the Fourteenth. Intoxicated by his successes and the adulation of his court, the King of France no longer brooked any objections to his will or any limits to his desires. The poison of absolute power had done its work. Louis the Fourteenth considered the quote-unquote office of king grand, noble, delightful, quote, for he felt himself worthy of acquitting himself well in all matters in which he engaged. 
Quote, the ardor we feel for glory, he used to say, is not one of those feeble passions which grow dull by possession. Its favors, which are never to be obtained without effort, never, on the other hand, cause disgust, and whoever can do without longing for fresh ones is unworthy of all he has received. Standing at the king's side, and exciting his pride and ambition, Louvois had little by little absorbed all the functions of prime minister without bearing the title. Colbert alone resisted him, and he, weary of the struggle, was about to succumb before long, 1683, driven to desperation by the burdens that the wars and the king's luxury caused to weigh heavily upon France. Peace had not yet led to disarmament. An army of a hundred and forty thousand men remained standing, ever ready to uphold the rights of France during the long discussions over the regulation of the frontiers. In old papers ancient titles were found, and by degrees the villages, burghs, and even principalities, claimed by King Louis the Fourteenth, were reunited quietly to France. King Charles the Eleventh was thus alienated, in consequence of the seizure of the Countship of Deux Ponts, to which Sweden laid claim. Strasbourg was taken by a surprise. This free city had several times violated neutrality during the war. Louvois had kept up communications inside the place. Suddenly he had the approaches and the passage over the Rhine, occupied by thirty-five thousand men, on the night between the 16th and 17th of September, 1681. The Burgesses sent up to ask aid from the Emperor, but the messengers were arrested. On the 30th Strasbourg capitulated, and Louis the Fourteenth made his triumphant entry there on the 24th of October. Quote, Nobody, says a letter of the day, can recover from the consternation caused by the fact that the French have taken Strasbourg without firing a single shot. Everybody says it is one of the wheels of the chariot to be used for a drive into the empire, and that the door of Alsace is shut from this moment. The very day of the surrender of Strasbourg, September 30, 1681, Catinat, with a corps of French troops, entered Casale, sold to Louis Fourteenth by the Duke of Mantua. The king thought to make sure of Piedmont by marrying his niece, Monsieur's daughter, to the Duke of Savoy, Victor Amadeo, quite a boy, delicate and taciturn, at loggerheads with his mother and with her favourites. Marie-Louise d'Orléans, elder sister of the young Duchess of Savoy, had married the King of Spain, Charles II, a sickly creature of weak intellect. Louis the Fourteenth felt the necessity of forming new alliances. The old supports of France had all gone over to the enemy. Sweden and Holland were already allied to the empire. The German princes joined the coalition. The Prince of Orange, with an ever-vigilant eye on the frequent infractions of the treaties which France permitted herself to commit, was quietly negotiating with his allies, and ready to take up arms to meet the common danger. Quote, he was, says Massillon, a prince profound in his views, skilful in forming leagues and banding spirits together, more successful in exciting wars than on the battlefield more to be feared in the privacy of the closet than at the head of armies, a prince and an enemy whom hatred of the French name rendered capable of conceiving great things and of executing them, one of whose geniuses seemed born to move at their will both peoples and sovereigns." French diplomacy was not in a condition to struggle with the Prince of Orange. M. de Pompon had succeeded Lyon. He was disgraced in 1679. Quote, I order his recall, said the king, because all that passes through his hands loses the grandeur and force which ought to be shown in executing the orders of a king who is no poor creature. Colbert de Croissy, the minister's brother, was from that time employed to manage with foreign countries all the business which Louvois did not reserve to himself. Duquesne had bombarded Algiers in 1682. In 1684 he destroyed several districts of Genoa, which was accused of having failed in neutrality between France and Spain. 
and at the same time Marshals Humière and Crequy occupied Audenarde, Courtrai, and Dichemude, and made themselves master of Luxembourg. The king reproached Spain with its delays in the regulation of the frontiers, and claimed to occupy the Low Countries pacifically. The Diet of Ratisbon intervened. The emperor, with the aid of Sobieski, king of Poland, was occupied in repelling the invasions of the Turks. A truce was concluded for twenty-four years. The empire in Spain acquiesced in the king's new conquests. Quote, it seemed to be established, said the Marquis de Lafare, that the empire of France was an evil not to be avoided by other nations. End quote. Nobody was more convinced of this than King Louis the Fourteenth. He was himself about to deal his own kingdom a blow more fatal than all those of foreign wars and of the European coalition. Intoxicated by so much success and so many victories, he fancied that consciences were to be bent like states, and he set about bringing all his subjects back to the Catholic faith. Himself returning to a regular life, under the influence of age and of Madame de Maintenon, he thought it a fine thing to establish in his kingdom that unity of religion which Henry the Fourth and Richelieu had not been able to bring about. He set at naught all the rites consecrated by edicts, and the long patience of those Protestants whom Mazarin called, quote-unquote, the faithful flock. In vain had persecution been tried for several years past. Tyranny interfered, and the Edict of Nantes was revoked on the 13th of October, 1685. Some years later the reformers, by hundreds of thousands, carried into foreign lands their industries, their wealth, and their bitter resentments. Protestant Europe, indignant, opened her doors to these martyrs to conscience, living witnesses of the injustice and arbitrary power of Louis the Fourteenth. All the princes felt themselves at the same time insulted and threatened in respect of their faith as well as of their puissance. In the early months of 1686 the League of Augsburg united all the German princes, Holland and Sweden. Spain and the Duke of Savoy were not slow to join it. In 1687 the Diet of Ratisbon refused to convert the twenty years' truce into a definitive peace. By his haughty pretensions the king gave to the coalition the support of Pope Innocent XI. Louis Fourteenth was once more single-handed against all when he invaded the electorate of Cologne in the month of August 1686. Philipsburg, lost by France in 1676, was recovered on the 29th of October. At the end of the campaign, the king's armies were masters of the Palatinate. In the month of January 1689, war was officially declared against Holland, the Emperor, and the Empire. The commander-in-chief of the French forces was entrusted to the Dauphin, then twenty-six years of age. Quote, I give you an opportunity of making your merit known, said Louis the Fourteenth to his son. Exhibit it to all Europe, so that when I come to die, it shall not be perceived that the king is dead. End quote. The Dauphin was already tasting the pleasures of conquest, and the coalition had not stirred. They were awaiting their chief. William of Orange was fighting for them in the very act of taking possession of the kingdom of England. Weary of the narrow-minded and cruel tyranny of their king, James the Second, disquieted at his blind zeal for the Catholic religion, the English nation had summoned to their aid the champion of Protestantism. It was in the name of the political liberties and the religious creed of England that the Prince of Orange set sail on the 11th of November, 1688. On the flags of his vessels was inscribed the proud device of his house, I will maintain. Below were the words, Pro Libertate et Protestante Religione. William landed without obstacle at Torbay on the 15th of November. On the 4th of January, King James, abandoned by everybody, arrived in France, whither he had been preceded by his wife, Mary of Modena, and the little Prince of Wales. The convention of the two houses in England proclaimed William and Mary kings, or roi, king and queen. 
The Prince of Orange had declined the modest part of mere husband of the Queen. Quote, I will never be tied to a woman's apron-strings, he had said. By his personal qualities, as well as by the defects and errors of his mind, Louis the Fourteenth was a predestined acquisition to the cause of James the Second. He regarded the revolution in England as an insolent attack by the people upon the kingly majesty, and William of Orange was the most dangerous enemy of the crown of France. The king gave the fallen monarch a magnificent reception. Quote, the king acts towards these majesties of England quite divinely, writes Madame de Sévigny on the 10th of January, 1689. For is it not to be the image of the Almighty to support a king outdriven, betrayed, abandoned as he is? The king's noble soul is delighted to play such a part as this. He went to meet the Queen of England with all his household and a hundred six-horse carriages. He escorted her to Saint-Germain, where she found herself supplied, like the Queen, with all sorts of knick-knacks, amongst which was a very rich casket with six thousand lois d'or. The next day the King of England arrived late at Saint-Germain, the king was there waiting for him, and went to the end of the guards-hall to meet him. The king of England bent down very low, as if he meant to embrace his knees. The king prevented him, and embraced him three or four times over, very cordially. At parting his majesty would not be escorted back, but said to the king of England, This is your house. When I come hither you shall do me the honours of it, as I will do you when you come to Versailles. The king subsequently sent the king of England ten thousand louis. The latter looked aged and worn, the queen thin and with eyes that have wept, but beautiful black ones. A fine complexion, rather pale, a large mouth, fine teeth, a fine figure, and plenty of wits. All that makes up a very pleasing person. All she says is quite just and full of good sense. Her husband is not the same, he has plenty of spirit, but a common mind which relates all that has passed in England with a want of feeling which causes the same towards him. It is so extraordinary to have this court here that it is the subject of conversation incessantly. Attempts are being made to regulate ranks and prepare for permanently living with people so far from the Restoration." In his pride and his kingly illusions, Louis the Fourteenth had undertaken a burden which was to weigh heavily upon him to the very end of his reign. Catholic Ireland had not acquiesced in the elevation of William of Orange to the throne of England. She invited over King James. Personally brave and blinded by his hopes, he set out from Saint-Germain on the 25th of February, 1689. Quote, Brother, said the king to him on taking leave, the best I can wish you is not to see you back. He took with him a corps of French troops commanded by M. de Rosan and the Count of Avaux as adviser. Quote, it will be no easy matter to keep any secret with the King of England, wrote Avaux to Louis the Fourteenth. He has said before the sailors of the St. Michael what he ought to have reserved for his greatest confidants. Another thing which may cause us trouble is his indecision, for he has frequent changes of opinion, and does not always determine upon the best. He lays great stress on little things, over which he spends all his time, and passes lightly by the most essential. Besides, he listens to everybody, and as much time has to be spent in destroying the impressions which bad advice has produced upon him, as in inspiring him with good. It is said here that the Protestants of the North will entrench themselves in Londonderry, which is a pretty strong town for Ireland, and that is a business which will probably last some days. The siege of Londonderry lasted a hundred and five days. Most of the French officers fell there. The place had to be abandoned. The English army had just landed at Carrickfergus, August 25th, under the orders of Marshal Schomberg. Like their leader, a portion of Schomberg's men were French Protestants who had left their native country after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. They fought to the bitter end against the French regiments of Rosin. The Irish Parliament was beginning to have doubts about James II. Quote, Too English, it was said, to render full justice to Ireland. End quote. 
There was disorder everywhere, in the government as well as in the military operations. Schomberg held the Irish and French in check. At last William III appeared. He landed on the 14th of June, and at once took the road to Belfast. The Protestant opposition was cantoned in the province of Ulster, peopled to a great extent by Cromwell's Scotch colonists. Three parts of Ireland were still in the hands of the Catholics and King James. Quote, I haven't come hither to let the grass grow under my feet, said William to those who counselled prudence. He had brought with him his old Dutch and German regiments, and numbered under his orders thirty-five thousand men. Representatives from all the Protestant churches of Europe were there in arms against the enemies of their liberties. The forces of King James were scarcely inferior to those of his son-in-law. Louis the Fourteenth had sent him a reinforcement of eight thousand men under the orders of the Duke of Lausanne. On the first of July the two armies met on the banks of the Boyne, near the town of Drogheda. William had been slightly wounded in the shoulder the evening before during a reconnaissance. Quote, "'There's no harm done,' said he at once to his terrified friends, but as it was the ball struck quite high enough." End quote. He was on horseback at the head of his troops. At daybreak the whole army plunged into the river. Marshal Schomberg commanded a division. He saw that the Huguenot regiments were staggered by the death of their leader, M. de Caimotte, younger brother of the Marquis of Ruvigny. He rushed his horse into the river, shouting, quote, "'Forward, gentlemen, yonder are your persecutors!' He was killed in his turn as he touched the bank. King William himself had just entered the Boyne. His horse was taken to swimming, and he had difficulty in guiding it with his wounded arm. A ball struck his boot, another came and hit against the butt of his pistol. The Irish infantry, ignorant and undisciplined, everywhere took flight. Quote, "'We were not beaten,' said a letter to Louvois from M. de la Hoguette, a French officer, but the enemy drove the Irish troops like sheep before them, without their having attempted to fire a single musket-shot." All the burden of the contest fell upon the troops of Louis the Fourteenth and upon the Irish gentlemen, who fought furiously. William rallied around him the Protestants of Enniskillen, and led them back to the charge. The Irish gave way on all sides. King James had prudently remained at a distance, watching the battle from afar. He turned bridle, and hastily took the road back to Dublin. On the 3rd of July he embarked at Waterford, himself carrying to Saint-Germain the news of his defeat. Quote, "'Those who love the King of England must be very glad to see him in safety,' wrote Marshal Luxembourg to Louvois. "'But those who love his glory have good reason to deplore the figure he made.' Quote, "'I was in trouble to know what had become of the King my father,' wrote Queen Mary to William III. "'I dared not ask anybody but Lord Nottingham, and I had the satisfaction of learning that he was safe and sound.' i know that i need not beg you to spare him but to your tenderness add this that for my sake the world may know that you would not have any harm happen to him you will forgive me this the rumour had spread at paris that king william was dead the populace lighted bonfires in the streets and the governor of the bastille fired a salute the anger and hatred of a people are perspicacious End of section forty nine